Good morning again, CCC. It's good to be back with you. I promise this is the last time for a while, though. You'll get Pastor Kevin back, and if we can get through this, you will have survived me yet again. Get some sort of a star, some sort of an award. I'm absolutely sure of it. Well, this morning, I want to uh, talk with you about a, an interesting phrase you may have heard, I am who I am, right? Well, when I go to speak publicly, I like to, probably you do the same, I like to look on the internet to see what's going on involving that subject or that, how that word is being used, how that phrase is being used. Um, uh, however, when you look on the internet at I am who I am, what you usually will get is things like uh, references to self-actualization or self-justification, or you may get um, uh, some uh, reference to um, some uh, giving an excuse for um, past behavior and um, no guarantees that it's going to get better. Uh, there's just all kinds of ways that this phrase gets used online and in our popular discourse today, but that's not at all what I want to talk about. In fact, I think all of those references, the self-actualization, justification, self-improvement, yada, yada, probably goes back to that great theologian of the 1930s. Maybe you remember him. Maybe you saw him on TV some when you were like uh, younger. Um, I am that I am, and that's all that I am, right? Um, well, it's not even Popeye that we're going to talk about today, although I loved watching Popeye when I was a kid. Instead, we're going to talk about an event that you guys, probably most of you, are quite familiar with. You've read about it, you've heard Sunday school, you know, Bible story time at home or whatever. You've heard uh, about this event, Moses and the burning bush and God's self-revelation to Moses that sets up a chain of events that will result in thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people being delivered from bondage, being delivered from slavery. So let's look at that passage and kind of begin to pick down through it and see if we can get out of original context what may be a cursory reading, maybe over-familiar reading, might miss in the process. So next, Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, um, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. It's a um, nickname for Mount Sinai. Um, places in the Bible have multiple names oftentimes. Even a, a place as, as front and center, as well known as Jerusalem, has like a half a dozen or so names. The city of David, Jebus, Salem, uh, Mount Zion. All of these are references to the same city, but using different names. So when you see Horeb, just plug in there Mount Sinai. Not as I got on the bus uh, one time and, and with students at Evangel, Mount sinai Okay, that would be a little bit deadly. Um, uh, nobody died there. So, uh, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in blazing fire from the midst of the bush. He looked and he saw that the bush was burning with fire, but wasn't consumed. Next, when the, when the Lord, when Yahweh, 
all capital letters last week, right? Uh, when Yahweh saw that he turned aside to look, then God called to him from the midst of the bush. Wait a minute, I thought it was the angel of the Lord. Remember the last slide? So there's this interchange going on between the angel or messenger in Hebrew and in Greek, messenger of the Lord and the Lord himself. There's some sort of a connection. We'll return to it. Um, God called to him from the midst of the bush, Moses, Moses. Most of the time when, you know, like Abraham, Abraham, when God calls and says, no, don't sacrifice Isaac. Um, at um, times when God uses, speaks to someone and calls their name twice, it's usually some sort of emphatic, some really important event moment that they, God needs your immediate attention, your complete attention. And so, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And we get that kind of phrase. We get it with Samuel. We get it with Isaiah. We even get it in the New Testament with people like, you know, the guy Ananias that came to help Paul to be healed and receive the Holy Spirit in Acts 9. Ananias says, here I am. It's kind of a way of saying, it's not, hey, um, recognize me. I, I, I'm, I'm over here. But it rather is a declaration. I am here and ready to do your bidding. Uh, uh, Speak because your servant is listening. You know, that's what we get with, um, uh, with Samuel. That's, that's the kind of idea that we get with here I am is like, I'm as urgent about this as you are. Let's have it. I'm ready to rock. And, and then he said, don't come near. Remove your sandals from your feet. Uh, the place where you're standing is holy ground. Next. And he, and he also said, God continuing to speak, I am, and we're, that, that's sort of the subject of our study today. It's an abbreviated version of I am who I am, or I am that I am, or I am who I always will be, or I was who I will be in the future. That's sort of I am. The God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then I put a whole bunch of Bible references in there. You can go back and look at the slides. I, I always leave them. But you can do your own study on this eight different times in this set of passages that spans Exodus 3 through Exodus 6, you get this declaration of, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And there's this intimate connection between what this means and that I am who I am um, with this God of your fathers. Uh, we'll develop that as we continue to study. Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. But Yahweh said, I've seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. And I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. I am aware of their sufferings. God is making declarations about his nature, about his character. And he's telling us, I'm not the God of Thomas Jefferson, the deist God. Or the God of Bette Midler, if we go back to go up to the 1980s, God is watching, God is watching, God is watching from a distance. This God that we're hearing about here and through the rest of the Bible is a very involved God. He's not detached from the, his creation, from his world, but he is intimately engaged with his creation. It also includes the apex of his creation, human beings. God wants to be involved in our lives. He's not interested in being the clockmaker that winds the clock up and then lets it run on its own. 
God is very much engaged in the world. He's very much wants to be engaged in our personal lives as well. I am aware of their sufferings. Next. So come now. I will send you. Um, and by the way, notice that there's this connection between this, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, who will send and has sent me, and this I am who I am. This connection, but they're the same. Both are the ones that I am, and uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one sending Moses to redeem, to rescue uh, his people. I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring out my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I'll say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Yeah, but that's still not going to be good enough, Moses is thinking. Now they may say to me, What's his name? What do I say to them? You see, Moses is anticipating a misunderstanding or a, a, a lack of understanding on the part of his audience. These people have been, consider context, in Egypt as slaves for 400 years. And as such, they've been surrounded by a pantheon of gods of Egypt that number over 2,000. And if you look north to where they're going to be sent to the land of Canaan, you have all kinds of crazy stuff going on in the name of the gods of the land, whether that's Chemosh or Molech, especially Baal and Asherah. These are fertility gods who call on people who worship them to do very strange and unhealthy things. Unhealthy for the person, unhealthy for the family, definitely unhealthy for children who end up being the objects of sacrifice. We're going to continue on. Um, But uh, this is the kind of situation that Moses is going to be speaking into, and he wants to make sure that when he brings his calling card, it is perfectly clear who is going to be redeeming Who is promising deliverance out of that situation of slavery? So the question is totally legitimate. They may say, what is his name? What do I say to them next? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's where we get this I am who I am or I am that I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me Again, notice the sent me of the I am, and then the God of the fathers has sent me. So it's the same thing. We're being called on to connect the dots. You remember when you were kids, it was before the days of things like um, uh, Pac-Man and um, games on uh, iPhones and that sort of thing, and your mom and dad, to keep you quiet and keep you from fighting on the backseat, gave you a little book and you were supposed to connect the dots. If you connect the dots, then it makes a picture, and then it's very clear to you the, what you've been working on. Had that experience? Yes. I know it's probably all digital now, but whatever. It still works. Uh, so this is, this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to connect these dots. This I am is sending Moses and Yahweh, <coughs> the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one sending. Th- those are context clues that are calling on us to connect those dots. 
What this slide is saying is this person is the same as this little nickname here, you know, like from Timothy to Timmy or Tim, okay? God's okay with that, of giving himself a nickname, right? Like Yahweh and then Yah, as in hallelujah. He's evidently all right with nicknames. I guess he's okay with us using those as well. But I am who I am. I am Yahweh and the God of your fathers are all the same person. So all of this is supposed to be informing us as to the answer to Moses' question, Who's, who am I supposed to say is sending me? More importantly, who am I supposed to say is the one who's going to perform this unbelievable act of deliverance, of rescue, of redemption? Um, and he says, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And we've got eight places where this phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is used as God reveals himself to Moses in this burning bush situation from Exodus 3 through Exodus 6. Those dots are supposed to be connected. I am who I am as a standalone leads us to all of those weird applications that we have gotten from the internet including Popeye's version of the same. God's not interested in weird. He's interested in clarity. And so when he declares, I am who I am, it's within this context of Yahweh and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, what's the point of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? When Moses says this to the people, when he gives this business card to the people in bondage, What this is declaring to them is the God that is promising you deliverance, redemption, is the God of your forefathers. He's the God who made covenant with Abraham and then renewed it with Abraham's son Isaac and then renewed the covenant again with Isaac's son Jacob. And this covenant renewal, this contract between God and man was provided certain promises and then laid down certain expectations and those God kept. He offered his word, his promise, uh, willingly and then he kept those promises to Abraham. And then in the next generation to Isaac and the next generation to Jacob, what he's saying is, I am who I am is a promise of God's faithfulness which is not just something out there in the ether. It's not something pie in the sky by and by. I have made these promises before, and I have always been good to those promises. I've always kept them. I've always fulfilled them. I've given my word, and I've kept my word. In other words, the God who your forefathers trusted, came to trust because I always kept my word, is the same God that you can trust now to fulfill this incredible promise to deliver hundreds of thousands of people from slavery all at the same time. If I kept my promise in the past, I will keep my promise to you. Of course, there's no practical application of that today, right? Yes, of course there is. He's the same God. 
If he promises and he keeps, then he is slowly but surely over the hundreds and thousands of years, 3,400 years ago, God made this promise to Moses at the burning bush. 3,400 years ago. Three millennia and a half. And God has been keeping those promises with our spiritual forefathers from that point all the way until now. And so the question for you and me is, well, if that's God's track record, if that's his dossier, if that's his portfolio, if that's his resume, and God has always offered good promises and then kept them, then the question for you and me today when he gives us his business card Can you trust him? Can you rely on him? Can you take the check that he signs to the bank and it be worth anything? And the answer is yes. It's not about pie in the sky. It's not about hoping against hope. It's not like with Elvis Presley, hoping hoping I made the right you know, choice of the multiple choice questions of all the different isms, philosophies, and religions in the world. It's a matter of, Who can you trust? This is important for us today, guys. We live in a day where the goalposts are constantly moving, where the target is constantly moving. We have a hard time trusting politicians. No, say it ain't so. No, but they consistently, and we're in a cycle right now, you get all kinds of promises, TV ads, radio ads, et cetera, et cetera, But then when they get in office, there's very little fulfillment. True or false? Doesn't matter what side the aisle. It's human nature. We we get made promises by people who are going to invest our money or folks that we're going to buy insurance from uh, or people we're going to buy a car from. All kinds of promises. And yet, after the money changes hands, the goalposts move. The target's constantly moving. I'm just really grateful that we're having revealed to us in the words of Scripture from 3,400 years ago, that there is one, actually two, there are two things that do not change. They don't morph. They are not just matters of convenience. Oh, well, I said that just because, and now the situation's different. No, God is the same, and his word, his promises are the same. They're not moving goalposts. They're not constantly moving targets. But God and his word are consistent. He has demonstrated historically the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He has demonstrated that he is worthy of our trust. He is trustworthy. He's not an unknown entity. Not an unknown quantity, but one that we can place our total reliance on because he's come through so many times. He has such a perfect track record. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name. This is how I am to be remembered. Um, God's serious about reputation. He's serious about his reputation. So this is how I will be remembered I'm not going to break my promises. If I did, I would not be true to myself. If I did, I would not be keeping that perfect track record intact that has been established from time immemorial. Next, the Hebrew behind this. And the reason that I put it up there is because I want you to make a visual connection between this 
I will be who I will be. Or you could translate it, I will be in the future who I always was in the past. There's an ambiguity in the Hebrew verb system. But I want you to make a connection, the yellow, between the root of this word, I will be, and the root of the word, Yahweh. It's the same. Here it is again. Ehie and Yahweh. The same root letters. It is so inherent within his nature that this then becomes his covenant name, his memorial name, that he will be remembered throughout all generations. Next slide. Exodus chapter 3 verse 16. I want you to go and gather, and, and by the way, I, the reason that I bring this passage to bear, it's one of those eight that then envelops that statement, I am who I am, and then tell them I am sent you. It's before it, and it comes right after it. It's the very next verse. Go and gather the elders and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there is this uh, defining that phrase, I am that I am. On both sides of it, like bookends or like, the, like parentheticals right here, uh, this statement of, I am the God of your fathers. I made covenant with them, I offered promises to them, and I fulfilled them to the nines. So this is like scripture interpreting scripture. It's, it's this phrase, I've been faithful to your forefathers. Historically, I have come through informing that I am that I am. So it probably should be read like this. I will be in the future to you who I have always been to your forefathers in the past. And that is trustworthy. Does that make sense? It really isn't rocket science. And I'm not just, the reason I put the Hebrew up here and all this other stuff, I'm not pulling up here pulling rabbits out of hats or nothing up my sleeve. This is total, you know, context that the authors of Scripture themselves, that God, the divine author of Scripture, he's intending us to connect the dots so that we get the big picture when we're finished. That's the whole goal. Next. In the book of Isaiah, he's facing a similar situation. Isaiah is speaking into a situation where he knows his people are going to go into exile and they're going to be in Babylonian exile for 70 years. And so what he does, what does, what does Isaiah do? What he does is he goes back to those themes, those motifs, even those phrases that are used to describe the exodus from Egypt. And he says the God who did it once is going to do it again. And so he develops these themes and what have you. You're going to see the language of the exodus, the original event of leaving Egypt and coming into freedom. You see these in Isaiah 41 through 48. And we're just going to see a few passages and what Isaiah does with this. He says, who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I mean, you're already into Exodus language there. I, Yahweh, am. Notice this. Stitch it together. I am. And then, I am the first and the last. I am he. There's that same nickname that God used back in Exodus. 
Tell them I am that I am sent you and that I am is sending you, right? So Isaiah is using, co-opting this language and applying it to a new situation. God's people are going to go into exile. That doesn't mean, even though their circumstances change, it doesn't change the nature of God. He is still going to be the God who makes covenant with his people and will move heaven and earth to keep that covenant, to make those promises a reality in their lives. And so he is telling that generation, I know you're going into exile, but God is going to bring you back. So all of these themes and motifs of redemption and deliverance, that kind of thing, Isaiah's building this into his message as well. I, Yahweh, am. I am Yahweh and the first and the last. And in Hebrew, this anihu comes into, as things develop between Malachi and Matthew, and the Old Testament is finished, the New Testament hasn't yet started, there are Jewish communities all over the world between Malachi and Matthew And after generations, they lose their native language. And they pick up the language of Alexander the Great and the Greek conquest of the the civilized world. And they begin to be Greek readers, speakers, and writers. And so there's a need in the Jewish populations, in Jewish communities, synagogues, all over the world outside the land of Israel to read the Bible with understanding. And so as early as 275 B.C., the Bible begins to be translated for these communities living outside of Israel into the Greek language. And so they are reading Isaiah in Greek out in the Greco-Roman world. And they're reading this anihu in Greek as ego I me. There you have it in English transliteration. Ego like ego, I, me. I and then I me is am. I am. Well, that's a really, really interesting phrase because we see that picked up in the New Testament on the lips of Jesus. Next. Uh, hold on to that. Another one in Isaiah chapter 48. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I've called. Kind of formatted that so you'd see the poetic parallelism. I am. There you get that. I am of Exodus 3.14. And that's the anihu, and there is that ego I me. And I am the first, and I am the last. In a moment, we're going to see how that translates into New Testament reality. Next. So we get in the Gospel of John, Jesus saying, Amen, Amen, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. In the Greek of that, seen that anywhere before? Isaiah. So Jesus is tracking back to Isaiah and Isaiah is tracking back to Moses and all of these dots connect. It's a way of God revealing his nature through the way he refers to himself, through his name. Next, at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and about to be arrested. Jesus, knowing that thing, everything that was coming upon him, said, Who are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. What do you think the Greek of that is? Ego I me. Which t- tracks back to Isaiah and the Hebrew, Anihu. I am. 
It is a shortened version. It is a nickname for I am who I am, which is synonymous with Yahweh and the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What is Jesus doing in these two passages, John 8 and John 18? He is declaring his co-equality, his unity, his connectedness with the God of the burning bush, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created the heavens and the earth. It is a clear declaration of his deity, his divine nature. So then what's true of the God of the burning bush Jesus is copying and pasting over onto himself, new time period, new situation historically, but the same God and the same promise. The same God of the burning bush who said, I promise and I fulfill, is also yes and amen in Jesus, which we just sang before I started this harangue. All God's promises are yes and amen in him, in Jesus. So, yes, we've turned the page, and we're in New Testament times now, but it's the same God, it's the same word, the same promises, and the same covenant consistency. Hallelujah. That's great to know when you go out to the workplace tomorrow. Great to know when you go into the emergency room like with Kyle Short. Great to know when you're having some kind of a financial crisis or whatever, or the car breaks down, or, 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 because he is the same. We might change our world, society, culture might change, but his goalposts never move. His target never moves. That is so encouraging, so encouraging. Thank the Lord for that. Okay, next. So, if you'll go geeky with me for just a moment, um, let's take a look at how this thing has progressed. Jesus has used this ego I me in the New Testament, which tracks back to Isaiah and the Greek version, at least, of Isaiah, once it gets translated for Jews living outside the land of Israel. Same thing, Right? I am, which is a shortened version of what was it that we saw in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14? I am is a shorter version of I am who I am. And I am who I am is directly connected to two other things, the name Yahweh and the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now all the dots are connecting, right? At least I'm hoping. The goal is to send you away more, um, uh, more enlightened, not more confused. So, all right, so we go from Isaiah in the Greek back to Isaiah in the Hebrew, Anihu, which is exactly what we got in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, the shortened version of I am who I am. So again, what does I am who I am mean? It is I am the God who was this way and always will be this way. And what is this way? Faithful to my word. Faithful to my word. Next, faithful to my promises. So in 314, I am who I am, that is shortened to I am and we just got that whole thing that where we track from Jesus back to Moses in a languagey, nerdy kind of way. Next. 
a final passage in Isaiah who's using all these Exodus, all this Exodus language. And he's taking the Exodus that happened hundreds of years before him and applying it to the current day and promising the people of his generation, yes, you're going to go into exile, but you're going to be delivered. You're going to be redeemed. You're going to be brought back out of Babylonian captivity, exile, and restored to your land and to the promise. Thus says Yahweh, the king of Israel, his redeemer. There's that redemption from Egypt motif. The Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. We've seen that in two other passages from Isaiah. That first and the last. I'm the creator God and I'm the completer God. I started human history and I will bring it to completion. I gave my promises and I always fulfill those promises. I am your all in all. You've heard that before. New Testament language, right? Beginning and end. First and last. Next passage. What we want to do is track that. And we're going to the words of Jesus, not in the Gospels, but in the book of Revelation. His willful, intentional self-revelation to John on the island of Patmos. And there he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Well, how does that connect to first and last or beginning and end? Alpha is the first letter of the Greek Alpha Beta, right? First letter. It's the letter A. And omega is the last letter of of the Greek alphabet. So you're getting, I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. And that's exactly what he says. Who was and who, who is, who was and who is to come. Very clearly, this is a reference to Jesus' return. Question for you. If he promised that he was coming back and he came when he was supposed to the first time, and Isaiah's promise was fulfilled, brought them back out of exile from Babylon and put them back in the land of Israel, Uh, promised with Moses that he was going to bring his people out of Egypt and into a land flowing with milk and honey, and all of those promises have been fulfilled. Is he going to come back? Is it going to be exactly the right time, right context, right situation? Survey says yes, Because so far, we have no reason to distrust him. His track record has been perfect. Uh, Someone said in the first service, batting a thousand. Batting a thousand. Every time he gets to the plate, he hits a home run. Every time he has offered promise, he has also brought about fulfillment. So those things that he has promised in our lives, he will fulfill those. Because it's a matter of his reputation being at stake. It's not just a matter of your need being met. He's got a reputation to keep. He's got a perfect track record to keep, a perfect batting average to hang on to. I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I gave you a few references just in case you want to go back to the slides. I always leave them. Who Go back to the slides and do some study on this, and what you will find is that God the Father, God the Almighty, and Jesus the Son are one. They are one and the same. We get that message throughout Scripture, but we get it very clearly here as well. Next, again, Revelation 20, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Isaiah language, which then tracks back to Moses. So again, a declaration of if this is Jesus saying this, 
And, that's what, and that was said by Isaiah of, of God the Father, God Almighty, the, the Lord of hosts. The two are indeed one. And their nature is one. Their promises are one. They both have that put together, that perfect track record that God is appealing to us today. You can trust me. You can trust my nature. You can trust my character. You can trust my hand. You can trust my promises. You can trust me, and you can trust my word. Next. This brings us to this whole idea of God's immutability. Um, I know it's a fancy word, but it means that he doesn't change. Mentioned it before. Human nature, yes, we change. Politicians, other leaders, we cha- they change. Bait and switch. Fake right, run left. These guys uh, consistently, every election cycle, make promises that they know that they're not going to be able to keep. I'm convinced, uh, are are already decided that they don't have to keep them. It's It's just to get us on board. Please understand that God's nature is not like that. Salesmen act like that. Mayors act like that. Um, uh, politicians act like that, that, but that is not the nature of God. When he makes a promise, it is his full intention to keep it, and it is his consistent track record over the hundreds and thousands of years that he has kept it. And because of that, he has then earned our trust. He is trustworthy, worthy of our trust. Um, in um, Psalm uh, 102, you've got this uh, passage here that underlines this trustworthiness of God because of his unchanging nature. In a world that is full of change, we have what the, the, what the hymnist uh, wrote, an anchor that holds within the veil. We have a point of consistency. Two things, God and the outgrowth of God and his character, his word, they are unchanging. That is this idea of immutability. Let me share just a couple of scriptures as we close about this very thing, this immutability, the unchanging nature of God. In the Old Testament, I just picked a couple, uh, but there are many. Even to your old age, we sag, we bag, but he stays the same. He is the same, unchanging, immutable. Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, for I, Yahweh, do not change. Is that clear enough? That should should be pretty clear. So let's go to the New Testament, see if it's any different there. In the book of Hebrews, we, we quote this verse so often, usually when we need something, but it's so much more than that. This is, should, be, should be an all-comprehensive uh, clarifier for our theology, what we believe. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, the past, today, the present, and forever, the future. He has no plans to go anywhere. He's not baiting and switching. He is the same. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The old King James reads, there's no shadow or change due to turning. He is just not going to say one thing and do another. 
describe himself one way and be a different way. These are the gods of the land. They were fickle. They could have a bad day at the office. If, if Mrs. God burnt the toast, then you could become a crispy critter next. Um, if you forgot his birthday, he could put out a, 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 a kill-on-contact warrant on you. If, um, uh, if you, some kind of way, uh, he, the God thought that you were being a little bit disloyal and because maybe you went to your wife's um, uh, God's temple on that God's birthday, then you were in a heap of trouble, boy. But that's not the nature of this God. He doesn't have bad days at the office. He's not fickle like the gods of the land. He is a covenantally consistent, faithful God. Next. Um, uh, this This is the kind of stuff that we do. We take the Bible, we try to make it visual, and we try to put it in its context, clarifying using geography or archaeology or language or ancient literatures or whatever. And the goal is that we get a real clear perspective on the God who has made covenant with us. He's covenanted with us. His side of that covenant is absolutely set in stone. He won't change it because his reputation is at stake. The only question is, are we going to step up? Are we going to own up to our side of the covenant? Which is, yes, we have responsibilities as well. In order to unleash that incredible goodness of God, in order to place ourselves in the middle of the train track with a train bearing down on us that's full of God's blessings, all we simply have to do is step up and obey Him, serve Him, love others as we love ourselves. It's not rocket science. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's not rocket science. And it's not like we're out there flailing around trying to, you know, just be covenantally faithful on our own because we're so awesome uh, or so cool or so super spiritual or whatever. God's always promised that he will meet us and he will empower us to live the way he's called us to live. He's promised that he will give his spirit to us to enable, to empower us supernaturally to be more faithful and more live lives of greater covenant consistency than we could ever do by our own efforts or by our own best wishes or um, our own New Year's resolutions or whatever. This God has promised to covenant with us and to, um, and to partner with us even in the fulfillment of our part of that covenant. So we're not out there on our own. He is a good God. He has made good promises that he's not going to back up on an inch. And then he's even promised to enable us to live in ways that will allow covenant blessing to be unleashed in our lives. Is that a good God? Let's, let's, pray. let's pray to him and recommit to that same kind of covenantal consistency that is embodied in his very name. Father, we want to give you thanks for your goodness. We want to give you praise that you, through the ages, have never, ever changed. We want to thank you that you have promised that you never, ever will change. And so, the styles come and go. The culture continues to change and shift and morph. 
people will make promises and, 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 and fulfill and often not fulfill. But you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for that, we declare your glory. We want to give you praise that throughout human history, you have shown yourself to be nothing less than covenantally consistent, faithful to your promises And Lord, as your people, we cry out for and we ask for your supernatural empowerment to take us places in our own personal lives that we could never go on our own with our own strength, with our own effort, with our own planning, with our our best wishes. Oh God of, uh, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we call out to you to enable us to be as covenantally faithful to you as you have promised to be to us. Thank you for your unchanging nature. Thank you for your beautiful promises. And thank you for making us your people to be able to inherit those promises. We give you praise and honor and glory as one who is worthy of our trust. In Jesus' awesome name, amen and amen. God bless you, CCC.